I invite you to the book of Exodus, chapter 32. Turn with me to Exodus, chapter 32, for our message, Come Make Us Gods. It was just a, a couple months ago that we took our family over to Colorado Springs and we're enjoying a long weekend, spending a couple days uh, together and outside. And we thought, as we often do, we'd, we'd try a new place. We like to try and eat new places or try new restaurants when we're out or around. And you can, of course, find the, the best recommended places on the internet or uh, on lists somewhere from that particular city. And so we picked out the one that seemed just right for lunch. And on a holiday, we went to uh, on a holiday we went to one of the restaurants on the top recommended list with our four children. At right at mealtime, it went great. It was one of those, they call it a dive. Uh, one, it was an old house converted into a restaurant, which is code for limited seating and nowhere to wait at mealtime with all your children. So we spent a good half hour outside thinking, you don't want to confine us into the confine us in the small parlor that they had set aside as a waiting room or area. So we walked the sidewalks and waited in the shade and played in the rocks and counted the twigs. And finally, we got tired of that. So we went and found our seat in the waiting room. And minutes turned to more minutes, and more minutes turned to an hour of what they told us would be a half hour wait. And okay, it's meal time. Maybe you underestimated the groups that came before us. And you know, sometimes you sit in a restaurant waiting area and you're just looking at all the tables that haven't been cleaned off yet. And you're thinking, if you'd like me to get up and do that, we could move this along. I don't think that would have helped much because when we did finally get ourselves seated at a table, uh, another hour began. And uh, after we'd ordered food, we sat there together entertaining ourselves with empty cups that used to be ice water and uh, played all the games we could at the table until finally after another hour wait at our table, and I'm not exaggerating the time, we were there two hours before... Uh, a nice waitress came up and said, oh, I'm sorry, we're out of burgers. And half our group, uh, including our children's kids' meals, were cheeseburgers. Out of burgers. After two, I, I would have thought, you could have told me that before you sat me down, but uh, we weren't too impressed. I thought, if you had told me that when we walked in, I'd have had time to go to the grocery store, get, uh, get you some beef, bring it back, and I could have gone back there and done it myself. We could have... We could have slaughtered a cow by now. And we left in the middle of the afternoon after the longest lunch of our lives. Uh, but no burgers. You ever been in that situation, sitting in a restaurant, thinking, would you like me to go back there and cook the food? Sometimes you're waiting so long, you just start to think, I should just take matters into my own hands. I'll go back there and do this if I have to. Waiting can be hard. Patience is not always our most common virtue. And then the funny story I told is only, I don't know, a small price to pay. A little bit of time, a little longer meal than expected. But no one ever paid more for their impatience than God's people in Exodus 32. Verse 1 says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed, to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. 
As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in your ears and your, uh, in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. You know, every now and then, we get feedback on sermons. I know it would, none of you would do this, but people come up to their pastor or, or talk about uh, teaching and say, you know what I, what I really want is not so many uh, fancy ideas, not so much of that theology stuff, just something nice and practical. And we want preachers to come down out of the clouds and, and give us something we can hold on to, you know, something you can take with you as you go. On today's Bible story, that seems to be exactly what this guy named Aaron did. He gave the people something they could hold on to. They could take home from church all the way to the house and not forget. An idol, a golden calf. Now, what that story has to say to us this evening may challenge us, uh, but oftentimes it's a word we need to hear. You know, what happened with with Aaron that day actually starts with his brother Moses. You know him well in the Bible. Most of us know his story, his burning bush episode, how Moses was out in the wilderness minding his own business when God captivated his attention. He was tending sheep for his father-in-law when the burning bush out there in the desert burst into flames and wouldn't stop burning. And the voice of God called out to Moses and said, My people are suffering in Egypt. I have heard their cries, and I want you to go to Pharaoh in Egypt and liberate my people. We know that part of the story, the the part where Moses gets called, and sometimes the the details are a little fuzzy about what comes after that. First thing we forget is that Moses didn't really want to do what God said. All throughout the beginning chapters of Exodus, we find all the excuses Moses has. Remember them? Get somebody else. Who am I to do this? God says, you're my servant. That's who you are. And Moses says, do you know, you know who I am? And God says, do you know who I am? I, I am that I am. Tell the people I am. And Moses says, this is a terrible plan. They're, they're never going to believe me. And God tells him to look at his staff and to throw it on the ground and it turns into a snake. And then God says, pick it up by the tail. All this happens to show Moses that God knows what he's doing. And Moses was almost out of excuses. In fact, he only had one left, so he used it. He said, God, look, I'm a really lousy public speaker. If I'm going to confront Pharaoh and set the people free, I need to be a powerful speechmaker, a good communicator, and that's just not what I am. And unlike all the excuses before it, that one seems to kind of worked. God says, well, look, see here, your brother Aaron over there, he's a good talker. I'll put you in charge of the vision and Aaron will do the speaking. You'll be the dreamer. Aaron will be the doer, the practical guy. You stay close to me and my word. Aaron will speak to the people for you. Problem solved. 
That's how Moses and Aaron became this ministry team that's still going in Exodus 32. Moses, the visionary, close to God, getting the word. Aaron, the great speaker, close to the people, letting them know what God said. And for a while in Exodus, that works out just fine. God helps them make it into a workable solution. Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh. They lead the Hebrews out of slavery through the Red Sea, across the desert to Mount Sinai. And that's when it happened. And and it's something else about their story that we tend to forget. Moses and Aaron get separated. God told Moses to climb to the top of the holy mountain, to draw close, to hear all the commandments that God has for all of the people. So Moses went up and Aaron stayed down. He's in the valley while Moses is on the mountain. The vision of God got separated from the practical things down in the valley that Aaron's dealing with and the holy things up on the mountain that Moses is listening to. It goes on for chapters just before this. God keeps speaking. You can turn your pages back and every paragraph will start with, and then the Lord said, and then the Lord said, and the Lord said. And Moses, just before this, had led the Israelites all the way to this mountain. And he's up on the mountain listening to the covenant promises and obligations of God, even including the Ten Commandments. You remember what the first and most important one of those was? It's something about not worshiping other gods, about the the making of idols of any kind. In fact, the Israelites in chapters 20, 23, they, they had agreed three different times to obey these commands. And the Lord gave the detailed instructions after that. He tells them how to build the tabernacle or the tent designed for God's presence to dwell in as they traveled to the promised land of Canaan. As we're reading this book of Exodus, you could read all of those steps and you would think the next step, the next logical step in this whole story is that the Israelites would start building the tabernacle, which will be this kind of mobile home for God's glorious presence among them. They would just get to work following the instructions. They have the blueprints now. Why not get busy? Well, Moses is up on the mountain and Aaron is down dealing with the people. And turns out God had a lot to say to Moses up on the mountain. He was gone a long time, 40 days. And down in the valley, the people start to grumble. Moses has been gone forever, they complained. We don't think he's coming back at all. For all we know, he's dead up there on that mountain. Frederick Buechner says the people started to think that maybe Moses had gone up the mountain and gone into real estate. And that would be sad. And the people start to say, we need to move on. We need a new God to lead us. Aaron, make us a God who will take us out of this desert. That's what they say. Come, make us Elohim. When the people saw that Moses wasn't coming down off the mountain, they mob Aaron and beg him to give give them what they want. Now the verb translated for delay Sometimes translated in the Old Testament as ashamed. 
because it's overwhelming at its basic meaning. The point appears to be that from the people's point of view, Moses has deserted them. He's too, too ashamed to come down the mountain. And though he has made Aaron the temporary leader in his absence, his abandonment of them is somehow shameful to them. They think it's a plot that Moses has allowed them to die at the base of the mountain while he's left them, deserted them. And Aaron, again, was the practical guy. He was the voice of the people, with the people. And so he he ends up bending to the pressure. It doesn't really seem like it took a whole lot of convincing. In fact, we get more words about how he makes the gold into a calf than we do about their argument to get him to do it. And in a flash, he flips and starts making something. Aaron instructs the people, all right, give me all your gold jewelry. And it's a shame, really, these gold rings that were given to the people by the Egyptians as an encouragement to get out of Egypt quickly. After all the plagues that God had sent on Egypt, the whole point of these furnishings, of these uh, jewelry, the gold that they had was that they would use them for building and furnishing God's tabernacle had they gone ahead and followed those instructions, the home of the presence of the Lord. They could have used those things to make a house for God, and instead they used them to make a God. Aaron gives in to the people's demands, uses that gold to make a statue of, of a golden calf or a bull for the people to worship. He takes all that gold and he throws it into the furnace. He brings it out and he says, here, here's a God you can touch, a God you can hold on to, a God you can take home from you, from church. And Aaron carries out that plan. In every sense of the word, Aaron becomes an artist. It's the same word in this passage we find in Genesis chapter 2. When God takes the dust of the earth and fashions you and me out of clay. And using that same language, the writer of Exodus says, Aaron took gold and fashioned for them a God. And so in the same way that God himself decided to create, his creation decides to create a God. They would rather make a God than be made by him. I've never had uh, much gold jewelry, but I'm pretty sure that when softened by fire, it gets malleable and they can make it into whatever shape they wanted to. But Aaron picks a cow, a golden calf. Do you ever wonder why he, he picks a golden calf? I mean, he doesn't make a, a, a golden camel or a golden giraffe. Those would have been kind of fun. He picks a golden calf. Why would that be? Well, all of these things point back to the same gods they had seen worshipped in Egypt. They looked back to the same false gods that God had freed them from. The golden calf was like a religious statue they remembered from their times as slaves in Egypt. They don't take us to the promised land. This God doesn't lead us to freedom. They take us right back to Egypt, right back to the slavery that God had led them out of. And so in their moment of fear 
and weakness and waiting, the people have decided to turn back. Instead of going with God forward into the promised land, they turn around and go back to the gods they'd been freed from. And that's the way it always goes, isn't it? I mean, we read a story like this and it can seem so foreign. None of us uh, are going to struggle with golden oxen this week. But actually, it's a story as, as fresh as the latest news cycle. That everywhere we turn and everything that we have becomes something waiting to take away our freedom. The freedom that God has given to us. And we have this God who wants to take us from slavery to freedom, just like these people, who wants to take us into the promised land of life and joy and full humanity and his love, a land, uh, metaphorically, of milk and honey. But we get scared on the journey. God seems absent for a moment or distant from us in our troubles or too demanding to listen to. God's commandments are too hard. And in our fear, we trade the living God for a more practical God, a God we can touch and see who's smaller and closer and more like us. And rather than look for the God who fashioned us, we turn back to the life he freed us from and take those things and fashion our own gods because we can hold them and, and trust them and see them. And it's so easy to mistake our own creations for God. It's so tempting to shape our riches or our wages or our expectations, our work or our families or the best things about our life to, to shape those things into things that <clears throat> pleasure our senses or calm our anxiety or invite the admiration of our neighbors. And every time we seek those things, we turn back to the slavery God freed us from. That thing we've made from Egypt's gold is not our God. Did you see the way the people talked about it? In one breath they say, Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, and not a few verses later, they put it before them and they say, this is your God. This is what brought you out from the land of Egypt. The second that Aaron fashions for them another God, they forget who it was that led them to freedom in the first place. Our handmade gods are no competition for the one who offers freedom. As close as we draw it, as much as we try to, we realize that they can never offer us the same thing that God does. So the people take one look at this a gleaming calf, and they proclaim, These are your gods, O Israel. Now, all of a sudden, it's not Moses who brought them up out of Egypt. It's this new-made calf. And so they step, yet another step, away from the true source of their freedom. And whatever Aaron had in mind when he allowed them to collect their jewelry, when he asked them to give it to him, it has now become a big old stumbling block for the people that he was charged to lead. So he tries to salvage this whole disaster. That's what happens next. It says he builds an altar in front of it, and he starts to, to preach to them. Aaron made a proclamation, said, Tomorrow shall be a feast 
to the Lord. In other words, he says, oops, we better have church. So the next day they rose early, offered their burnt offerings, brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Go down at once, for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. See, in the morning, uh, the people go through the motions, as invited by Aaron, of a typical Yahweh worship service. They offer the offerings and bring the peace offerings. And I'm sure they smiled and, and dressed as finely as possible, except with no jewelry. And then their real intent shines through. The text says they sat down to eat and to drink. And however your Bible chooses to translate a confusing little phrase, they sought out to indulge themselves, we're told. God says it was corruption at its finest. They turn to the very things they've made instead of the God who made them. And the good news of the gospel is that even when we do that, even when we let go of God and grab instead the things that we make, God won't let us go. He won't hand us over to the false gods that we make. He just keeps coming to us, taking us by the hand, leading us again and again out of the wilderness and into his freedom. That's the difference by the way, between the golden calf and the God who made them. One of them is something they can hold on to. And the other one is something that holds on to them. The God who heard the cries of God's people, the God who came to them to set them free and to take them to the land of joy and promise is the same God who comes to us in Jesus. And even when we make our golden calves or allow ourselves to be enslaved all over again, the Lamb of God comes to seek and to save that which was lost. And only in that kind of love, the love that takes hold of us, do we have the freedom to let go of all the false gods that weigh us down to follow Jesus into the life that really is life. Jesus holds on to us, even when we hold on to other things. On a trip recently, the writer Sean Dietrich was relaxing by the swimming pool when he noticed two boys, two brothers, beside the pool. One of them was named Ben. He writes, I know this because Ben's little brother kept shouting. It was always Ben, this and Ben, that. And Dietrich writes, he saw the little brother was actually uh, impaired. He was missing both arms at the elbow joints. And actually, one of his legs was confined to a brace for assistance. He watched as Ben carefully removed his little brother's brace and left it there with their towels. And then he helped his tiny brother into the pool, and, and Dietrich describes what happened. The younger brother says, I'm scared, Ben. He says, don't worry, I've got you. Ben had his arms wrapped around the little boy, bear-hugging him from behind, 
carrying him into the pool. They eased into the water. Ben was still embracing his brother tightly. His brother was freaking out in the water because he wasn't sure he wanted to be there. Don't let me go, Ben. I won't, he said. Promise? Promise. And so Ben held his brother even tighter in the pool and Ben carried the little boy around the shallow end until his brother calmed down. And when, when Ben's brother was relaxed, Ben started to teach him how to float on his back. He said, don't let go of me, Ben. A little boy who struggled to swim because he was missing both arms below the elbow. Ben said, I won't. And supported him from beneath as he floated him on his back. He said, I've got you. And I'm not going anywhere. In an even more profound way, Jesus, the, the expression of the living and true God, comes down into the valley to find us. Even when we're afraid, when we've turned away, when we've gone and forsaken him to serve our idols, our false God, Jesus Christ comes to free us from our fears, from our faithlessness. And he wraps his arms around us and will never let us go. I promise, he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. There are two kinds of gods in our story. Gods that we can hold on to and one God who always holds on to us. Only one of them brings us life. Let's pray together. Father, we reach in so many ways and so many directions for things to bring us comfort and peace calm or joy but only you reach for us you come to us in our time of need in our time of trouble in our time of worry in our time of grief in our time of happiness you're always there and you always hold us help us to remember that only you bring the life that we need in jesus name we pray amen